you know, the reason that the World Health Organization has declared sleep loss an epidemic will become really clear over these next few sections. So the science is becoming very obvious that a lack of sleep is a threat to health and safety, as we mentioned previously. And insufficient sleep is linked to seven out of 15 leading causes of death in the U.S., including cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, accidents, and even cancer, too. So let's dive a little bit into this frightening statistic. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché-Urcuyo, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, my husband, Dr. Danny, and I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is one of our Pursuing Health pearls. In medicine, we refer to clinical pearls as small bits of freestanding information relevant to clinical practice, usually based on experience. Pursuing Health Pearls are shorter episodes in which Danny and I offer you succinct, high-yield info on common health conditions or other topics. We do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. With that, let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome back to Pursuing Health, everybody. This saga of the cornerstones for health continues here on the Pursuing Health Pearls as we are going to dive into the topic of sleep on this episode. And there is a lot to talk about when it comes to sleep. This is just going to be some of the basics. And of course, we'll cover more here on future episodes. I have to say, too, that before doing the research for this episode, I knew that sleep was really, really important for our health and for our performance. But after digging into even more of the research, I'm now convinced it's probably the most important lifestyle factor that we have control of that we can focus on for our health. So I'm super excited to be talking about it today. Yeah, but before we get started, we want to remind you that we've made a commitment not to have sponsors on the show. And this is so we can remain as unbiased as possible. And the only way for us to do this is with your support. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can support us by going to pursuing-health.com slash subscribe to be a Pursuing Health subscriber for less than the cost of a latte each month. Yeah, I know. I've been I've been cutting down on my lattes, I feel <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe just because of COVID. But <laughs> um, so in doing so, you will not only be supporting our ability to keep putting out podcast content like this, but you'll also get some nice perks like workout programs, exclusive discount codes, and live Q&A sessions that we do every single month with our subscribers. So again, if you're able to, we would really appreciate your support. You can head to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber. So I mentioned a minute ago that this episode is all about sleep basics. Yes. So let's start with a basic overview of the state of sleep in the United States and the world in general. Then what we'll do is we'll try to illustrate why a lack of sleep is such a problem and shed light on the role it plays in both our health and our safety. Then we'll spend some time briefly outlining the important components of sleep, what's actually going on when we sleep. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we'll wrap up by summarizing some of the most important and simple ways we can improve our sleep. Awesome. So lots to cover. Let's dig in. So we'll start with what we know about the state of sleep in the U.S. and across the world. So here in the U.S., about a third of adults report sleeping less than seven hours per night, which is the recommended minimum for adults by the Center for Disease Control or CDC and the National Sleep Foundation or NSF. And the topic of sleep duration also highlights some racial and socioeconomic disparities in the United States. So minorities report less sleep than non-minorities, as do those who are unable to work or those who are unemployed. And furthermore, sleep duration has the, is highest among those with higher education and those who are married. And worldwide, we're seeing this too. So lower education, not living with a partner, lower quality of life are all things that are associated with a higher prevalence of sleep problems. And the WHO has actually declared sleep loss a global epidemic with roughly two-thirds of adults sleeping less than eight hours per night. So it's pretty significant. And I think the racial and socioeconomic disparities just highlight too, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of things we can do to improve our sleep at the end of this episode, but it's not just about that. There's a lot of other factors that are maybe outside of our control that are contributing to our poor quality or lack of sleep. Certainly. Now, 
you know, the reason that the World Health Organization has declared sleep loss an epidemic will become really clear over this next, these next few sections. So the science is becoming very obvious that a lack of sleep is a threat to health and safety, as we mentioned previously. And insufficient sleep is linked to seven out of 15 leading causes of death in the U.S., including cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, accidents, and even cancer, too. So let's dive a little bit into this frightening statistic and talk about metabolic health first, since it's something we've talked about quite a bit here on the podcast lately. Yes, we certainly have. So back <laughs> in episode 146 about metabolic health, we talked about how some of the hallmarks of metabolic dysfunction are excess carbohydrate consumption and impaired blood sugar regulation. And turns out inadequate sleep actually results in both of these things. So it's no bueno. Yeah. So first, we know that inadequate sleep results in increased food consumption, particularly sugar. And mm -hmm. I think we've seen that in ourselves as well. We've all experienced it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so the way this works is that sleep loss results in a decrease in the satiety hormone leptin, which signals our brains that we're full. But then it also increases the hunger hormone ghrelin, which motivates us to eat more. So it's kind of a double whammy, mm -hmm. big problem. Therefore, it's no surprise that when they studied this in people that on average, people consume about 250 calories per day more than they would with normal sleep. Additionally, when we are sleep deprived, it increases our preference for calorie dense, high carbohydrate foods that are so damaging to our metabolic health. And it's thought to be secondary to actual changes in our brain chemistry with sleep loss. And, and I've experienced that for sure. Me as well. <laughs> I know like after a long night of call without getting much sleep, those donuts look really good the next yeah, morning. Yeah, and you can't fight it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I think we both do really good about avoiding sugar and sweets on a regular basis, as long as we're sleeping well. But once we start to get sleep deprived, your sort of your lack of control in order to make those right decisions starts to go away. Yeah. And there's a scientific reason for that too. You know, as we get, become sleep deprived, the frontal lobe, the part, our executive center, the impulse control center of the brain starts to work less well. Mm -hmm. So it all makes sense. We've experienced it. So, yeah. um, so not only are we primed to take in more calories and specifically more of those energy dense um, calories and carbohydrates when we're sleep deprived, but it also makes our bodies less insulin sensitive. So not only are we getting more of the bad stuff, but our bodies are not able to handle it as well either. Mm -hmm. So in two different studies, restricting participants sleep to four hours for one night or to five hours per night for one week resulted in significant reductions in insulin sensitivity. So it doesn't take long. It's not like you have to be sleep deprived for a week or for a month to start impairing your, your insulin sensitivity. This can happen pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So sure. together... You have this increased intake paired with impaired glucose regulation or insulin resistance. This can result in weight gain and metabolic dysfunction. And additionally, even if you are restricting calories, so say, you know, you have super self-control and even though you're sleep deprived, you're restricting your calories and trying to quote unquote diet, weight loss is actually going to come primarily from your lean body mass and it's not going to come from fat mass. So you're not going to be losing weight from the places that you really want to. So sleep is super important, especially when it comes to trying to lose weight too. Absolutely. And then sleep loss also increases our, the activity of our sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight system that we've talked about in the past. And this can lead to chronic increases in heart rate and blood pressure, stress hormones like cortisol, increased brain activation, which can then lead to anxiety and insomnia, and then even low-grade inflammation. We discussed, we discussed this chronic systemic activation in recent episodes about metabolic health. Um, but also in that great episode, episode 139 with Dr. George Slavich, where we discussed stress and the impact of stress and low-grade inflammation too. Right, because stress is a huge activator of that sympathetic fight-or-flight nervous system, and sleep really does the same thing. Yeah. So, so on the other hand, we have to think about sleep as a powerful tool to combat this, because deep sleep actually helps us to um, get out of a sympathetic state by decreasing our heart rate and our blood pressure. And so if we're not spending enough time in that deep sleep state, it means our cardiovascular system doesn't have enough time to recover and it can contribute to disease as we're going to hear about in a second. Yep. So inadequate sleep also affects our genes, rather the expression of our genes with, mm -hmm. through a phenomenon called epigenetics. And what epigenetics is, we'll describe in a second, is each of us are born really with, with DNA. It's kind of the, the book of life. It's the instruction manual for ourselves. And epigenetics is the study of how those different genes are expressed, how they're turned on and off. And that's mainly controlled by our lifestyle factors and our exposures, sleep being perhaps one of the most important ones. Yeah. So a study looked at 
the gene expression in men and women who are getting eight and a half hours of sleep per night compared to when they were restricted to just six hours of sleep per night for one week. And what they found was there was actually a change in the epigenetics or the expression of over 700 different genes in these participants. And when they looked closer at the type of genes that were expressed differently, they found that in the sleep-deprived state, the expression of genes linked to chronic inflammation, cell stress, and cardiovascular disease were increased, while those genes that were responsible for maintaining optimal metabolism and immune function were actually decreased, which is kind of crazy to be able to see that on such a epigenetic level. Yeah. And as we discussed previously, the ultimate deadly outcome of metabolic dysfunction is cardiovascular disease such as stroke and heart attack and sleep deprivation has been associated with a greater risk of both. So scary, scary stuff. So Mm -hmm. what's very interesting actually is that even really small changes in sleep can have an impact on heart attack risk. For example, one study done at the University of Michigan, go go blue, blue, (laughs) um, found that 24% found a 24% increase in patients presenting with heart attacks to the hospital the Monday after spring forward daylight savings time when they lost an hour of sleep that weekend. That's crazy. But what's even more interesting is that after the fall back daylight savings time, when patients gain an hour of sleep, they observed a 21% decrease in heart attacks. So it's a really interesting example, very cool example of a natural experiment mm-hmm. and, and learning from that natural experiment. Yeah, crazy with just one hour difference of sleep that you can actually see a difference. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's summarize what we've just talked about, the effects of chronic sleep loss on our metabolism. So we know that chronic sleep loss increases our appetite and hunger. It decreases our impulse control, so we're eating more of those sugary, high-calorie foods. It increases the amount of food that we eat, particularly those carbohydrates. It decreases our insulin sensitivity or our ability to control that blood sugar increases our sympathetic tone or the fight or flight state, and also has epigenetic effects altering our gene expression in a less favorable way. And all this together results in metabolic dysfunction, which we've talked about in depth on that previous podcast. And this state makes it more difficult, again, to lose fat when we're sleep deprived. And over the long term, it results in increased cardiovascular disease, such as strokes and heart attacks, which is really what we're all trying to avoid. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the effects of sleep loss extend far beyond metabolic syndrome, mm-hmm. metabolic problems too. So next, let's talk about sleep loss and one of the scariest diseases I think of all, which is Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. which is referred to as type 3 diabetes by some. And we're just beginning to understand the mechanisms that underlie Alzheimer's disease, but it seems that there is a relationship between that disease and poor sleep. So we know that sleep disturbance is relatively common among patients with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So up to 40% of patients who have mild to moderate dementia have some sort of sleep disturbance. And these changes in sleep seem to come before the cognitive decline. And then it looks like also the intensity of the sleep disturbance correlates with the severity of dementia symptoms. So it seems like there is a relationship there between sleep and the dementia. Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's is also characterized by a buildup of toxic proteins called beta amyloid plaques in the brain, which impair connections between neurons. So it kind of messes Mm -hmm. up with the wiring. And this increased buildup of plaques has been noted even after just one night of sleep deprivation. Interesting. So less sleep means more amyloid plaque buildup. Yeah. And initial research also suggests that de- that these plaques are de- deposited, I was going to say deposed, <laughs> deposited in areas of the brain that are involved in sleep. And so that means that these areas of the brain that are involved in regulating normal sleep may be disrupted. And so disrupting the level of, or the ability to have deep sleep. And because deep sleep is so important for memory, this disruption in deep sleep may represent one reason why we see such memory impairment in those with Alzheimer's disease. And it's a two-way street. So without adequate sleep, there's more amyloid plaque buildup in the brain. And the more amyloid plaque buildup in the brain is, the less deep sleep there is. So it's kind of a vicious cycle that's very hard to get out of. So getting adequate uh, deep sleep to prevent amyloid plaques allows for these plaques to be removed and actually maybe an important way to avoid Alzheimer's disease in the future. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more later as we get into how sleep works, about how some of these plaques are actually removed during the process of sleep. Yeah. 
All right, so let's move on to the topic of the immune system. This is another huge topic. Sleep is incredibly important for a properly functioning immune system, as I'm sure you've all heard, you know, when you're sick, everyone's telling you, make sure you get a good night night of sleep. So we're going to just spend the next few minutes going through a couple examples about how sleep is implicated in good immune system function. Yeah, so the first example is how sleep affects our susceptibility to infection. They did an experiment where they studied the sleep of 164 healthy men and women and monitored them for one week. And then they were given nasal drops containing rhinovirus, which is a common cause of the cold, the cold. Mm-hmm. Um, which those are some brave volunteers yeah. to willingly get the Sign cold. Up for the cold. <laughs> <laughs> so then they watched them and, and they wanted to see who would get the cold. And they found that those who were sleeping less than six hours on average had an increased likelihood of developing cold symptoms compared to those who were sleeping seven hours or more per night. Those who slept less than five hours per night, 45% of those folks developed cold symptoms. And then just 18 of those who slept seven hours or more developed the cold. And this is interesting, especially in the area of coronavirus. Absolutely. So when we, most of us or a lot of us have an opportunity to get a little bit more sleep than we would previously, perhaps because we, we don't have a commute. And that may be a, a powerful way of decreasing our risk for infection, even if we were exposed. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's all these ways that we can protect ourselves, but thinking about, you know, the things that are within our control, sleep is certainly one of them that we can do that. Even if we do end up getting exposed one way or another, maybe we won't be as likely to get um, the infection or get the symptoms, or maybe the symptoms will be less severe because our our immune system is going to be better able to handle that. And of course, this is all theoretical because they haven't done this experiment with the coronavirus per se, but you know, I'm willing to take the risk and get a little bit of extra sleep to, yeah. to hedge my bets. You'll see that the benefits are far, <laughs> far reaching beyond just the immune system. Right. All right. So the next example talks about our ability to mount an immune response to the flu vaccine. And I thought this was super interesting. So this was a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2002. And they showed how adequate sleep is important for mounting a response to the flu vaccine. So normally the flu vaccine works by stimulating your body's immune system to create antibodies against the flu virus so that if you end up becoming infected with the flu later that year, your immune system will be able to fight it off without you getting sick. And in this study, they took young, healthy adults, half were allowed to sleep a full night of sleep, seven and a half to eight and a half hours, while the other half are restricted to just four hours per night for six nights in a row. And then at the end, they gave them all the flu shot. Then they measured their antibodies in the days following. And what they found was those that got the most sleep showed signs of a healthy immune system generating a powerful antibody response, while those who were sleep restricted produced less than 50% of the antibody response. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. So that definitely made me think more. I know last year before I got my flu shot, I made sure I was getting a good <laughs> a good week of sleep before I went in for my flu shot, because if you're going to get it, you might as well help your immune system along to make the best response possible so that if you do get exposed to the flu, hopefully you won't get it. Yeah. And theoretically, since you, and for those vaccines that rely on an immune or on a antibody response, it's probably a good idea to get a full night's of rest before those vaccines as well. Absolutely. Yep. So as you know, immune function is important for developing an antibody response against a vaccine. So we Mm -hmm. just covered that. But it's also very important when we're talking about immune function and prevention of cancer. Mm -hmm. So some of the medications we use nowadays actually target and leverage the immune system. Natural killer cells, which are a type of immune cell, which we'll talk about in a second, are particularly important in fighting cancer. Studies have actually shown that a single night of four hours of sleep results in a 70% reduction in natural killer cells relative to a full night of sleep. That's huge. Which is crazy. 70%. Right. And observational studies have shown that there's an increased risk of dying from cancer in those who have a shorter sleep duration, so less than six hours. And beyond sleep deprivation, circadian rhythm disorders also affect cancer risk. So much so that the World Health Organization and the International Agency for Research on Cancer have classified nighttime shift work as a probable carcinogen. That's crazy. That is scary. And, it's you know, very scary. If you think about all the healthcare practitioners mm-hmm. that are working, doing shift work these mm-hmm. days with the coronavirus um, and all of our firefighters and first responders, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a big problem. Right. There's so many. I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's a pretty large percentage of the population who is doing nighttime shift work. And- mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think as a society, we have to figure out ways to mitigate that impact of that on our health. Absolutely. Because it's a huge portion of the population, whether it's factory workers, healthcare, first responders. Um, it's a big problem. But also interesting side note, natural killer cells 
two are boosted by time in nature, yes. which is, you know, not necessarily talking about sleep, but maybe, you know, take a camping trip in nature and yes. then you'll get lots of extra <laughs> natural killer cell um, function. All right. So next topic is one, I think every male's favorite topic, right? Testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> so as it turns out, sleep actually has a huge impact on testosterone levels and fertility in both males and females. Yeah, and one study uh, performed in young, healthy men who were restricted to five hours of sleep per night for one week, they noticed a 10 to 15% drop in testosterone compared to folks in their relative um, rested state. That's huge, in just one week. Yeah, so let's put that in context, what that actually look like looks like. So normal aging results in a 1% to 2% decrease in testosterone per year. So this one week of sleep loss effectively aged them from a testosterone perspective by 5 to 15 years. Which yeah, is nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. <laughs> the poor quality and poor poor quality and poor quantity sleep um, was also observed in folks with obstructive sleep apnea, which is a pretty common sleep disorder, which then results in decreased testosterone levels. And you know, I see this all the time in my practice. So much so that when I see low testosterone in a male patient, I immediately screen them with a questionnaire for obstructive sleep apnea because it's just so common. Yeah, and by treating the sleep apnea, you can then bring the testosterone up. Exactly. In a natural way without any sort of medication. It's really, really neat. So now to top it all off, um, reduced sleep and late bedtimes are also associated with impaired sperm health in men. So if you're looking to reproduce, (laughs) sleep deprivation is probably not a good idea. Not a good idea. (laughs) Um, Definitely, it's a natural and free way to boost your testosterone. Yeah. All right. Reproductive function in women, though, is also affected by sleep. So women, we're not off the hook. We know that levels of FSH or follicle-stimulating hormone, which is an important reproductive hormone in women that stimulates egg growth in the ovaries, was found to be 20% lower in women who had chronic sleep deprivation. So sleep is very important for all of us. Yes. So it's important for metabolic health. It's important for reproductive health, but it's also important for our mental health too. Mm -hmm. So sleep disruption is also implicated in a majority of psychiatric conditions. This includes depression, anxiety, PTSD, bipolar disorder, even schizophrenia. And the mechanisms are still being worked out, but it's likely not a one-way street. It's probably that this sleep disturbance is contributing and is not causing these conditions. But what we know is that there is definitely an interplay between a psychiatric condition and sleep. Mm-hmm. And sleep disturbance is also recognized as a universal risk factor for relapse in addictive substance use, which probably goes back to what we were talking about earlier about that kind of impairment of the frontal lobe and not being able to, um, or or sort of having more more of that impulse um, decision making, and why we're eating the carbohydrates when we're sleep right. deprived. Right. Same sort of process. All right. So another way that inadequate sleep poses a threat to our health and safety is through the impact of sleep loss on car accidents. So I think this is underestimated in many people, um, but there's known to be a increased risk of car accidents with increasing sleep deprivation. And this is what I found really scary that if you pull adult drivers, one out of every 25 said they report actually having fallen asleep while driving in the previous 30 days. Fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. Like not just like gotten drowsy, but just actually fallen asleep while driving. That's really terrifying. Terrifying, yeah. Really terrifying. And it's estimated that up to 6,000 fatal crashes each year in the U.S. could be due to drowsy drivers. Now, again, it's really difficult to estimate that number because it's hard to measure. Like you could maybe measure alcohol levels or other drug levels causing a car accident. But, um, it you know, it's probably even more than that. Yeah. Another super scary statistic, because that's what we're all about here. I guess, <laughs> we're today. just trying to scare you <laughs> into sleeping. <laughs> yeah. So being awake for 19 hours um, actually co- cognitively impairs you to the degree where you're pretty much considered legally drunk. And 19 put, hours is not a lot. It's not a lot. So for example, <laughs> if you wake up at 6 a.m., you decide to stay out late with friends. You don't drink, but you just decide to stay out late, and then you drive home at 1 a.m. You're as cognitively impaired as if you were legally drunk. That's crazy. That's wild. Although I have to say, like, I've definitely been in that position where I'm driving home late. I haven't had anything to drink, but I'm feeling like, wow, my brain is not working as fast yeah. as it would if it was first thing in the morning. Which is terrifying because people in general are not good self-reporters of how impaired they are. So if you feel like you're impaired, you're probably pretty impaired. You're probably pretty impaired, <laughs> which is really scary. So yeah. just don't take the risk. <laughs> yeah. Spend the night. Hang out. It's all good. You can drive home in the morning. 
All right. So we've talked a lot about some of the damaging effects of inadequate sleep on our cognitive function and our physical health. But some good news, sleep can be used as a very powerful tool to enhance our performance. So this has been recognized by the International Olympic Committee. So they put out a consensus statement on youth athletic development. They recognize the importance of sleep in athletic development and the potential consequences of not getting enough sleep. And so they recommend interventions to support adequate sleep in youth athletes because they know how important it is for their development as athletes and as people. Yeah. And getting that adequate sleep has also been associated with a variety of performance gains, specifically aerobic output, things like vertical jump height, peak and sustained muscle strength, all things that are really important for athletic performance. Mm -hmm. And chronic sleep deprivation, and this is probably pretty well known or or it's becoming well known, is chronic sleep deprivation is also associated with a higher risk of injury among athletes. So yeah, I think we're seeing more and more trends for especially these professional sports teams to put more emphasis on sleep for their athletes and adjusting their travel schedules so that they're Mm -hmm. able to protect the sleep time. But it's important for all of us, whether we're, you know, working out in a CrossFit gym every day, whether you're, you know, a weekend warrior doing you know, triathlons on the weekend, whatever it is, you know, if you want to be safe and you want to be doing it for a long time, make sure you're getting sleep so your body can be recovered um, and that you're going to get the most out of your performance and hopefully prevent injury. Yep. All right. So now we've talked a little bit about the implications of poor sleep on our health. Hopefully we haven't scared you too much, (laughs) but it was eye-opening for us, I think, and we already knew quite a bit about this. So we'll give a brief overview now of how sleep works, and then we'll talk about how we can best work with these natural systems of our bodies to give ourselves the best chance for good quality sleep in order to maximize our health. So there are two main factors that determine when we sleep. The first is the circadian rhythm, and the second is sleep pressure. The circadian rhythm we've talked about in previous podcasts, and you can kind of think about this as the built-in rhythm in our bodies that allows us to function on a 24-hour clock. The length of each person's circadian rhythm is unique, but it's usually slightly longer than 24 hours, usually around 24 hours and 15 minutes. There's an area in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that uses light to reset the circadian clock each day for us. And this allows us to stay in tune with that 24-hour daily cycle and allows us to not drift away from that because remember that the circadian rhythm is slightly longer than that 24 hours. Right, because if you're adding 15 minutes every day, your (laughs) your day is going to start to look real different than my day. So thank goodness for light to help us stay on track. Right. Um, And also importantly, the circadian clock is not set just by light, but also things like food intake, exercise, fluctuations in temperature, and even regularly timed social interaction, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Melatonin um, also plays a role, which is a hormone that's released by the pineal gland, and it helps to signal darkness and the onset of sleep. So some people take that as a supplement, um, but the brain makes it all on its own, and it's a powerful driver for sleep. So melatonin rises after dusk, it peaks around 4 a.m., and then it drops quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. So the second factor that Danny mentioned that determines when we sleep is sleep pressure. And so this comes from a chemical called adenosine, which gradually builds up in our brains while we're awake every day. So we start off with kind of very low level of adenosine throughout the day. We build up more and more. And the longer you're awake, the more adenosine builds up. The more adenosine you have circulating in your system, the greater the pressure you feel to fall asleep. So then when it's very high and you end up falling asleep at night, During sleep, the adenosine is cleared and that sleep pressure starts to decrease throughout the night. And then in the morning, the process starts all over again. Very cool system. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, caffeine actually blocks those adenosine receptors. So even though adenosine is increasing as the day goes on, while caffeine is in your system, it's harder to feel that sleep drive that's naturally building up throughout the day. So caffeine can be a powerful tool, but know that it's, you know, it's blocking a natural system. So these two factors, the circadian rhythm and sleep pressure, both work in concert to signal the onset of sleep each night in a 24-hour cycle. So beautiful, beautiful system. Yeah. It's important to note that humans also have a genetically hardwired dip in alertness that occurs in the mid-afternoon hours. So that two-hour slump that everybody feels, mm-hmm. that's normal physiology. After yeah. lunch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What did I say? Two hours. Two hours. <laughs> For some of us, it's two hours. <laughs> um, yeah, that 2 p.m. slump. And, you know, not adhering to this biphasic sleep pattern, which is nighttime sleep followed by a short nap in the mid-afternoon, 
can lead to an increased risk for cardiovascular disease and mortality. Yeah. So this was actually really interesting to observe because there are many cultures around the world that still use this biphasic sleep pattern that have this sort of siesta in the afternoon, especially in South America and the Mediterranean areas of Europe. And it was interesting to watch one of these cultures in Greece transition away from a siesta siesta practice. Um, And researchers found that those that abandoned the siesta actually went on to suffer a 37% increased risk of death from heart disease over the following six years, which is pretty remarkable. It's a short period of time, but you know, it seems like that siesta or that biphasic sleep pattern was maybe protecting their heart in some way. Remarkable. A free intervention to reduce cardiovascular risk. Once again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it may not be a coincidence that other areas in Greece where um, siestas still remain commonplace, that there's uh, there's the highest concentration of centenarians, so people who live beyond 100 years old. And one example that Julie and I love is the Greek island of Ikaria, where they have this famous tagline where people forget to die, which I just love. (laughs) They just live such healthy, beautiful, long lives. All right. So now that we know how the timing of sleep is coordinated, let's talk about what happens while we are asleep. So there's two major stages of sleep and we alternate between them in approximately 90 minute cycles over the course of the night. Yeah. So the first stage is NREM sleep or non-rapid eye movement sleep. And it's predominant in the earlier parts of the night. And the key function of non-REM sleep or NREM sleep, is storing and strengthening new information while weeding out and removing unnecessary neural connections and also waste products. So we touched on that a little bit earlier today. The glymphatic system in the brain, which is like the lymphatic system in the mm-hmm. rest of the body, drains out waste products from the body's tissues, what the lymphatic system does, and the glymphatic system is very similar. And this glymphatic system is especially active during non-REM sleep. So what happens is that the glymphatic system is made of a lot of these glial cells, which are distributed throughout the brain. And during NREM sleep, the glial cells shrink significantly. And this allows the cerebral spinal fluid that bathes those neurons to clear out toxic waste products that have built up and allows them to drain away. And one of these toxic waste products is that amyloid plaque that we talked about earlier that builds up um, in Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful system. The next stage is called REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. So REM sleep is predominant later in the night, and this is important for integrating new information. So this includes integrating new facts and memories with previous experiences, creativity, learning languages, social and emotional learning. REM sleep is also where dreaming takes place. So you lose muscle tone during REM sleep, preventing you from acting out your dreams. So to summarize, you can think of the states of wakefulness and sleep like this. So the waking state is for information gathering, for perception, NREM sleep stores that information, weeds out unnecessary connections, and then REM sleep integrates that new information together with past experiences, allowing to engage in complex functions such as problem solving, language, social interactions, and creativity. And as we mentioned just a minute ago, these sleep cycles take place every 90 minutes. So the ratio of NREM to REM sleep within each 90 minute cycle changes dramatically across the night. So the beginning of the night, you have more of that NREM sleep. So it's about solidifying and cleaning out all the bad stuff. And then later in the night, you have the REM sleep, which is more about creating these complex connections and creativity. And because both of these cycles are important, and REM REM sleep is especially important for that integration. Um, function, missing out on those later sleep cycles, which most of us probably do because we're not sleeping enough, means that we're missing out on more of the REM sleep proportionally. um, And that's why it can be especially detrimental. Yeah. REM sleep is also especially important for development of neural connections in the developing brain. So Mm -hmm. our little ones in utero, a fetus is almost exclusively in REM sleep, which I didn't know, which I thought was fascinating. Crazy. But they have to make so many connections, That's right. right. They're just developing. Infants have closer to a 50-50 split of NREM and REM sleep. And then as this continues throughout life into childhood and then late teens and adult years, that split settles around 80-20 and REM sleep um, during that time. All right. So we've talked about signals that determine when we sleep. We've talked about the importance of each of these different stages of sleep and how they cycle throughout the night. Now we're going to talk a little more about how our sleep changes as we age. So first, we have a decreased ability to generate deep sleep as we age. And this is because kind of as we started talking about with Alzheimer's disease, The parts of the brain that are responsible for generating deep sleep are some of the same areas that degenerate first 
with aging. Next, we also have a reduced sleep efficiency as we age. So teenagers have a sleep efficiency of about 95%. And sleep efficiency is really the percentage of time that we're in bed that we're actually asleep. So teenagers are great at sleeping. I think we all know that. Um, But sleep efficiency usually drops below 70 or 80% by the time we hit 80 years old. And this is likely due to increased fragmentation of sleep as we age, sometimes for many reasons, but medications are some, diseases, or even a weakened bladder. There's also a change in sleep timing. So the circadian rhythm shifts throughout different stages of life. And teenagers, as we discussed, they love to sleep, but actually the circadian rhythm is shifted forward. So meaning they naturally fall asleep later and wake up later. And this is the reason why forcing teenagers to wake up early or go to bed early and start school early is especially problematic because according to their circadian Mm -hmm. clock, they're supposed to be asleep. They're not being lazy. They just need to sleep. (laughs) Their brains are just not functioning well in that time period. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. And in contrast for people in the later stages in life, their circadian rhythm is shifted forward, or excuse me, shifted backwards. So they have earlier bedtimes and earlier awakenings. Mm -hmm. Additionally, the overall strength of the circadian rhythm and the amount of nighttime melatonin released as we age decreases too. All right. So now that we've addressed the changes that occur to sleep as we age, let's talk about everyone's favorite question, how much sleep do we really yes. need? This is yes. what everyone wants to know. So both the CDC and the NSF recommend seven to nine hours of sleep per night for adults. And years of research really indicates that eight hours is optimal for most adults. So we know that after 16 consecutive hours of being awake, our brains begin to slow down significantly. And actually, this was really interesting. A series of experience experiments showed that after 10 consecutive days of just seven hours of sleep, which for most people sounds like, hey, I'm doing pretty well. I got seven hours. That resulted in the same level of brain dysfunction as pulling one all-nighter or going without sleep for 24 hours. With that fact, it's amazing. You you really think how many of us are really leaving cognitive ability on the table? I mean, most of us get seven hours of sleep. And the statistics that we shared earlier, a lot of us get less than seven hours of sleep. Absolutely. So think about the impact, the economic impact that has on, mm-hmm. on the world too. So big problem. And there. I know, I mean, I'm a good sleeper. So I know if I get seven hours, I don't feel good. I know right. I need eight or more in order to feel at my best. But I think other people get seven and they're feeling great. Right. Right. And the, those folks that maybe get less than seven hours, they'll think, gosh, you know, I'll just, you know, catch up on the weekend. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that that doesn't really work. Performance still suffers even several nights of getting several nights of full sleep after that episode of, of sleep deprivation. And as we mentioned previously, humans have a really hard time um, determining how sleep deprived they really are. They have a mm-hmm. poor perception of how cognitively impaired they are from sleep. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people will say, oh, I'm just one of those people who only needs four or five oh, yes, hours of yes, sleep. Like, <laughs> I just don't need a lot. But in actuality, there are very, very few people, like less than 1% of the population, who truly need just a few hours of sleep per night and do not experience any negative cognitive or other health effects from doing so. And this is largely programmed by their genetics. So we don't have, unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do to try to cheat the system. Yep. So next, let's talk about improving sleep. We've talked about the epidemic of sleep loss, wherein the impact that sleep loss has on our health and what our sleep system needs to do in order to function optimally. But let's cover some of these these hacks, if you will, or these things that you need to do in order to improve your sleep. All right. So the first step in getting enough quality and quantity sleep is just giving yourself the opportunity to Mm -hmm. do so. And I think this is where probably most of us struggle because often we're going to bed late, knowing we have to get bed back up early in the morning for work or for another obligation. So planning ahead and trying to establish a consistent bedtime and wake time that works for both the weekdays and the weekends can help to do this and really making it non-negotiable. Yeah. Alarms can be particularly detrimental because of their propensity to induce that that fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. I, for one, when I hear that alarm, I immediately jolt oh my up gosh. and my heart races. We all know, like say it's the middle of the day and someone's alarm goes off on their phone and it's the same sound that you're morning alarm is oh, set yeah. too, like you're immediately in panic You get mode. this like visceral <laughs> reaction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What's There's even... real things happening to your physiology. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I'm guilty of this, sometimes hitting that snooze button multiple times. Now now you're getting that jolt a couple times first thing in the morning. You can see how that sets you up for, for really a, a non-ideal state moving mm-hmm. forward throughout the day. So ideally, giving your body the opportunity 
to wake up without an alarm would be ideal. Mm -hmm. And this might take a little bit of upfront work. Perhaps you've got a vacation, a one or two week vacation. Try to sleep as long as you can each of those nights and then see how much sleep you actually need and then and then time it up so that when you start your your work routine again, you don't need an alarm mm-hmm. to wake up. And and make sure that you have that consistent bedtime and wake time. So right. that hopefully, you know, ideally you're waking up before the alarm. Right. All right. So next is about maintaining a good sleep environment. So now that you have time to sleep, we got to set up our environment so that we can facilitate facilitate good quality sleep. So first aspect of a good sleep environment is the appropriate use of light. And we all know since we have introduced artificial and particularly those blue LED lights into our society, the usual changes in natural light throughout the day that help to train our circadian rhythms and signal that release of melatonin are just being overridden. A survey conducted of Americans revealed that 90% of people regularly use some sort of electronics one hour before bedtime. So a lot of us are exposing ourselves to this blue light. Um, When reading an electronic book compared to, let's say, a paperback book before bedtime, those who read the electronic book will report less sleepiness in the evening. They usually take longer to fall asleep. They have reduced melatonin secretion. They have a later timing of their circadian clock. Again, that makes sense because that Mm -hmm. blue light signals the suprachiasmatic nucleus to shift that circadian clock. And then as a result of that, you have reduced alertness in the morning, probably because you're still waking up your regular sleep time, but that whole circadian clock is shifted forward. Right. It's no good. So there are a few ways that you can mitigate the damaging effects of this constant blue light exposure. The first is just trying to avoid bright lights in the evening hours. So maybe dim your lights at home, maybe use orange tinted glasses to help filter out the blue light that suppresses melatonin release in the evening. There are also programs that can be used on your computer or phone, such as Flux, which automatically filter out the blue light in the evening. Um, and then blackout curtains are another fantastic tool that can help to maintain complete darkness in your bedroom throughout the night. And I know, you know, Danny and I have experienced this in our previous house. He went all out and, you know, blacked out our whole room. It was amazing. We got got great quality sleep, but lately we've been traveling. So we've been, you know, waiting kind of on the process of moving. So we've been going from place to place and a lot of places there is light coming in in the morning and our sleep has really been affected. And it doesn't take a whole lot of light. It can be street lamps coming mm-hmm. into the room. So even that little bit amount of light can really affect us. Because again, we didn't evolve with street lamps and constant light exposure. Nope. Yep. So on the topic of light, getting some good old fashioned outdoor sunlight in the morning can be very beneficial too. And this helps to train that circadian rhythm. So one way that you could implement this is by taking your coffee and walking, going for a walk in the morning, or simply just going for a walk first thing in the morning to really expose your brain to that bright light. Maybe we'll go with decaf coffee because we're going to talk about coffee here in a that's second. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, all right. So the next factor we'll talk about when it comes to a good sleep environment is temperature. Yeah. So many people think that it's really darkness that signals the brain to go to sleep, but it's also a drop in temperature that's really important. So in order for us to initiate sleep, our body temperature, our core body temp needs to drop about two to three degrees Fahrenheit. So a bedroom of about 65 degrees is ideal for sleep for most people. But if you're still having trouble falling asleep at 65 degrees, perhaps decreasing it another two to three degrees um, may be a good strategy. And this strategy has actually been studied. There's been an 18 to 25% reduction in time to fall asleep that's been reported in adults when they have a reduced body temperature. Um, And in addition to just lowering the thermostat, there are some other strategies you can use too to lower your core body temperature. So taking a hot bath is one. Mm -hmm. And this might seem counterintuitive because you're trying to lower your temperature. So why would you get in a hot bath? But actually... The hot water, when you get out of the bath, it helps to dilate your blood vessels that are close to the surface of your skin. So when you get out, that heat quickly dissipates from your body and results in a reduced core temperature. And hot baths prior to bed have been shown to induce a 10 to 15% more deep NREM sleep in healthy adults. So it's been studied. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are also other devices that are designed to reduce core body temperature to improve sleep onset such as things like the chili pad or the eight sleep mattress if you really want to geek out on this stuff. Yeah. 
Noise. So next, let's talk about noise. This is really, reducing noise is very important for a good sleep environment. So for some people, that might not be an option based on where they're living, but using earplugs can be very helpful. Using a white noise machine or you know, so using your cell phone to make some soothing sounds, things like but that. With There's no lots light of, on it. With no light, <laughs> yes. There are some apps out there that you can that you can use for that purpose. And then there's that night shift mode on your cell phone mm-hmm. that you can use to reduce that blue light exposure. Um, but but I know you're a huge advocate. Danny's always got earplugs. He's always got to have complete silence. So yes, he's a good example. It's for not that. a good thing, even <laughs> when studying. Yeah, I can't have any input to be super focused. Um, next, you, you should really make your, your bed for, for sleep only. So if you, if you can't sleep, let's say that you're looking at the clock, for example, um, don't try to power through and really force yourself to go to sleep. Get up, walk around, do something relaxing, then come back to bed so that your brain is really trained that the bed is for sleep only. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've got a good sleep environment. We're giving ourselves the opportunity to sleep. The next thing that we can do to really maximize our chance of getting the most out of our sleep is avoiding substances that interfere. And there are two substances that are widely used that really have a big impact on our sleep. So those are alcohol and caffeine. So we'll start first with alcohol. And again, before doing this research, I knew alcohol was bad for our sleep. But now that I know exactly how detrimental it can be, I'm thinking a lot more seriously about having even the occasional small glass of wine in the evening because I know it's going to have an impact on my sleep. And in disrupting our sleep, which is so important for solidifying new memories, alcohol has also been shown to reduce the amount that we learn. So there was a really interesting study where participants were asked to learn something, and then some of them were given alcohol that evening, and they retested how much they had learned a week later, while the other half of the participants were given alcohol three days later, and they tested them a week later. So everyone was tested after a week of learning these facts, but some had alcohol the evening after learning, and some had alcohol three days after learning. And in both groups, there was a significant decrease in the amount they had learned compared to people who had not had any alcohol at all. So in the group that had alcohol the evening after, they had a 50% reduction in what they had learned. And in those who had alcohol three days after learning, they still reduced their retention by about 40%. So wow. yeah, so it's not just drinking that evening, but it's thinking about how your learning and your memory is integrated over the course of many days after learning what you've learned. Which is interesting because what do a lot of people do when they're studying really hard? Perhaps they'll reward themselves with a glass of wine and they'll right. relax, but it's actually impacting your learning. So it might not be a good idea to have alcohol when you're studying for something or, or preparing for something, trying to learn something new. Right. So also some of the most interesting studies to me were looking at the impact of alcohol, even in small amounts in pregnant and breastfeeding women. And of course, you know, it's recommended to avoid all alcohol while pregnant or breastfeeding. But, you know, looking at the reason why now it's very clear is that alcohol, even in small amounts, can reduce the amount of time that the fetus spends in REM sleep, as well as the intensity of REM sleep, which we know is super important for their development and developing and integrating all of those new neural connections. And then also infants of breastfeeding mothers who have had alcohol, just the equivalent of a drink or two, those infants have more fragmented sleep. They spend more time awake and they suffer a 20 to 30% suppression of their REM sleep. Again, it's such a critical stage of their life where they're developing all these connections. Um, You know, it's interesting how alcohol can have such, even just small amounts can have such a profound impact on their quality of sleep. Yeah. So in an effort to optimize sleep, perhaps removing alcohol might be a good first step because of all the reasons that we Mm -hmm. talked about first. But caffeine is another thing that we need to touch on. So it's not surprising to hear that caffeine significantly impacts our our sleep because it's, you know, something that we've probably noticed ourselves. If you have a cup of coffee in the afternoon, you've probably noticed that it's a little bit harder to fall asleep um, later that night. And again, this is because caffeine blocks those adenosine receptors, that sleep drive that we depend on when we first fall asleep Mm -hmm. um, in the evening. And caffeine levels usually peak about 30 minutes after consumption, and they have an average half-life of about five to seven hours. So that means if you finish drinking your coffee at 2 p.m., by 9 p.m., half of the amount of caffeine could still be in your system. And additionally, we have to think about decaf, because I know both... Danny and I have switched to decaf coffee, but decaf coffee doesn't mean it's 
no caffeine. Mm-hmm. It means that there's less caffeine, but it usually has about 15 to 30% of the caffeine that you would get in a regular cup of coffee. So there is still some there. And especially if you're drinking several cups of it, or if you're having it later in the day, it could still affect your sleep. Yeah. One thing that I really worked on in the past was, you know, trying to optimize my sleep. But one of the first things I did was I removed alcohol and caffeine. And I was wearing a whoop band that measures heart rate variability at the time. And I noticed a dramatic improvement in my heart rate variability Mm -hmm. by removing those substances, but also in my sleep. Mm -hmm. So it was really, really interesting. And sometimes these devices can be helpful to give you some directionality in terms of how things are impacting you. So I think that, you know, one of the easiest things to first do if anyone has any sleep issues is really just remove these substances Mm -hmm. and see what happens. Now, not everyone will notice a difference, Mm -hmm. but it is an easy first step. Yeah, it's a great self-experiment to do. And then at least, you know, if you remove them and you know the impact they have on you, then you can be more informed about how to use them, if and how to use them moving forward. For sure. So finally, no podcast would be complete (laughs) if we didn't talk about our favorite thing, which is exercise. So regular exercise can help improve our ability to fall asleep and the quality of our sleep too. But ideally, it should be done earlier in the day. Exercise done immediately before bedtime can actually make it more difficult to fall asleep. And if individuals are still having difficulty sleeping despite these measures, it's really important to work with an experienced physician to determine if there are any underlying sleep disorders that need to be addressed. So things like sleep apnea, insomnia, circadian rhythm sleep disorders, or others, um, you know, it's important, you know, if you're still having difficulty getting good sleep, that these things are checked out by someone who is well-versed in sleep medicine. Yep. So we've certainly covered a lot here today and and thanks for sticking with us. And, you know, to summarize, we start out by talking about the problem of sleep loss in our world today. Very common, very big issue. We spent a lot of time also talking about the implications of sleep loss on metabolic health, Alzheimer's disease, immune function, fertility, psychiatric conditions, and even even car accidents. We also talked about how sleep can, can be used as a powerful tool to enhance performance. And then we spend some time reviewing how sleep works, including those biological signals that determine when we sleep, the different stages and cycles of sleep, how sleep changes as we age, and how much sleep we really need. And then finally, we talked about the tools that are within our control to give ourselves the best opportunity to maximize sleep quantity and quality, including giving ourselves the opportunity to sleep, maintaining an optimal sleep environment with regard to light exposure, temperature, and noise, And avoiding those substances like alcohol and caffeine that significantly interfere with our sleep, as well as getting some regular exercise, which is always good for many reasons. (laughs) So you can see we covered a lot today. So feel free to reference the blog post if you want to dive into more of the Mm -hmm. details or to see the studies. And we recognize that we've been taking some pretty deep dives these last few pearls, but it's in order to lay the groundwork for foundations of health. And once we've covered most of these major topics, such as nutrition, and as we did today, sleep, we'll be breaking these down into a little bit more detail. So for example, we're considering covering topics such as how to maximize sleep while doing shift work or traveling across time zones, sleep tracking, and perhaps covering sleep tracking devices, and then covering specific sleep disorders like insomnia or sleep apnea, Mm -hmm. which are unfortunately very common. Yeah, so lots more to come, but we just wanted to lay the ground with with the basics of a lot of these foundations for health first. So we also wanted to give a huge shout out in this episode to Dr. Matthew Walker, who's a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. And he's the author of the book, Why We Sleep. And that book helped to direct a lot of our research and our discussion here. So if you're interested in learning more about these topics, we highly recommend checking out his book. And who knows, maybe we can get him to join us as a guest on a future episode. So before you go, we want to remind you that we have a strong commitment to not having sponsors on the podcast podcast in order to remain as unbiased as possible for you. And we never want you to think that we're saying something just because we're getting paid to say it. So the only way for us to continue to do what we do here and bring you content like this is with the support of you, our listeners. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other podcast episodes and would like to show your support, please head over to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber. Again, you can do so for as little as $4.99 per month. And I know we each give up a latte every month in order to do this for other podcasts and outlets that we find valuable. And so we hope you'll consider supporting us in a similar way. So not, not only will you support what we're doing, but you'll also get access to our workout programs, exclusive discount codes, a live Q&A session every month for our subscribers, which we love doing and is mm-hmm. a ton of fun. 
So again, we'd really appreciate it. Please head over to pursuing-health.com slash subscribe to show your support. Thanks again for joining us and we'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health Pearls. Bye guys. Bye guys.